The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I have with me in the studio today Pastor Peter Van Dudewert of Covenant Community Orthodox Presbyterian Church here in Taylor's, South Carolina. Peter, thank you for joining me. Zach, it's good to be here and glad to be service. Pastor Peter and I will be discussing, as part of our denominational debrief uh, segment that we're doing, we'll be discussing the 87th General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which was held on July 7th through the 14th in Sioux Center, Iowa, on the beautiful campus of Dort College. Uh, pastor Peter, as I said, is um, is a local pastor here in Taylor's, but he's also an alumnus of Greenville Seminary, class of 2007, and he and his wife, Laura Lee, have eight children. Now, Peter, just to kick some things off here, as we've observed on this segment in past years, the OPCGA is a delegated assembly. What this means is that designated numbers of commissioners are assigned to the presbyteries who then elect men from within their ranks to attend the assembly as representative commissioners or delegates. What preparations do you make to ensure that you are serving the best interests of the church as a whole, even as you're tasked with representing your presbytery as an elected commissioner? Zach, uh, I should have said this a moment ago on the podcast, but I'm thankful to be here, thankful for the ministry of Greenville Seminary, and uh, still fondly remember my time here and continue to pray for the Lord's very best for the school and its task in preparing men for ministry. I've also been a minister now in the OPC after graduating from the seminary for 13 years now, and uh, very grateful to God to be a minister in the OPC. I'm thankful to be ministering at the local level. Um, I consider uh, my membership in the Presbytery of the Southeast to be a great blessing and privilege to me as well. And then uh, the opportunity to go to the OPC General Assembly, uh, also uh, something I love to do and consider it an honor to do. We do have a delegated assembly, that's right. And what that means is that every Presbytery has a certain number of uh, teaching elders and ruling elders. Yes, in our OPC Book of Church Order, we actually use those those phrases as well, teaching elder and ruling elder, not as often. We more usually would say pastors and elders. Uh, our presbytery has a, a certain number of uh, pastors and elders that we send, uh, a designated number, and every presbytery does, and that's distributed across the presbyteries by the size of the presbytery. So the larger the presbytery, the more the delegates they send. Uh, our assembly uh, then is a little different than other assemblies. For example, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church or the, or the Presbyterian Church in America, which surely you're familiar with. Uh, l- less of a, a grassroots uh, assembly, uh, more of a delegated assembly, and that does change a few things. I've been to a good number of uh, PCA assemblies. And ARP and synod a- meetings. Yeah, and ARP synod meetings as a fraternal delegate to both, and then uh, I spent five years in the PCA as well, and and uh, attended a, a number of assemblies. And uh, the, being a delegate is, is a different sort of responsibility. Um, ideally, you should be active in your presbytery and know uh, something of the mind of your presbytery. You have a sense of duty to think of the whole and, and not simply um, your own interests, which might be narrower than the interests of your presbytery. You, you have a duty to remember uh, that you've been sent by by your brothers in the presbytery to do a certain work, um, 
the second thing you have to do is be familiar with like any other assembly with your agenda and your committee reports and the issues of the day and uh you do well to go well prepared and uh at this presbytery in particular uh, uh, the presbytery of the southeast which i'm a member of had some judicial matters before the assembly and that put an extra an extra amount of work uh into this presbytery into this assembly rather for our presbytery and so uh there's there's a lot of preparation thought and prayer and again the idea of that uh smaller delegated assembly um, to allow more deliberation, uh, greater uh, opportunities to speak for each individual commissioner, uh, is it makes our assembly a little different in feel than the larger assemblies. It is a, it is a, something of a Presbyterian commonplace here in the United States anyway, that you go to the OPC General Assembly and what is missing is uh, that call the question, which we hear all the time in the PCA. And it's largely because of this dynamic that you've laid out, that it is intended and designed structurally to be more deliberative. Uh, when a man rises, he doesn't rise simply on behalf of his session or of, of himself, whatever the case may be, but really rising on behalf of his presbytery, representing a much uh, broader constituency. Yeah, there's, there's one more thing about that. Our assembly runs, uh, we have our opening service on a Wednesday night, and we finish Tuesday noon of the following week. So we not only have less people, we have more time. Yeah. And uh, that that does that is an intentional design to give us time for deliberation. And we spend a, a Lord's Day together not doing assembly work, and we have a lot of good fellowship. And that's wonderful. Though I'll say this, you frequently meet on college campuses, and though I never lived on a college campus, I spent enough time on, on several during my college days. I would not want to be eating that food for any longer than I need to. So I would at least be motivated to make things move along more quickly <laughs> than even the time allocated. But... Jokes aside, uh, I like to kick off uh, my conversation uh, after laying that groundwork with just a review of some of the statistics. And Reverend Benjamin Snodgrass addressed the assembly on behalf of statistician Luke Brown with a report on the size and growth of the OPC this year. How many congregations are in the OPC today? So I think the number was 290. Uh, that includes 38 mission works. Um, we have now 18 presbyteries after this general assembly. And uh, that's a, a net growth of one congregation. So uh, it was encouraging to see, particularly in, as everybody knows, a complicated and difficult year that yeah. God preserved our church. How many members are in the OPC, at least according to the statistician's report? The report actually says 31,809. So about 32,000 members. And uh, again, in, in God's mercy, we've seen slow growth there and we're thankful to god for that and how many total ministers then uh just under 600 i think 570 and again a net gain of of two a number of questions are asked at the beginning of assembly uh what year were you what decade were you ordained in and we have a uh, we go through the assembly to see uh, the distribution and uh we've had uh, a period where we had a, a lot of ministers retiring a lot of older ministers are retiring, but at the same time, a lot of men being ordained. And so we still, in God's mercy, have a, a net gain. You know, there's a, a going to be a massive demographic shift as the baby boomers enter retirement age. And then, um, you know, we discuss this in the fundraising world as well as, as that generation uh, passes away and leaves behind uh, their 
earthly belongings to the next generation or to worthy organizations. There's just going to be massive shifts. And I think we will see by necessity a, a big move down, uh, downward in the average age of not just ministers, but doctors, lawyers, politicians, you know, soldiers, every segment of American society of, of, is going to be affected by this demographic shift. And we're seeing it, as you've mentioned here in, uh, in, uh, in the OPC among, it, among its ministry. How many men can come to General Assembly as delegates if the Presbytery sent their maximum complement? It's actually 155, which is the, the constitutional limit. And then that number is distributed across the, the Presbyteries. Um, and that's a, uh, th- that's a much smaller number than perhaps other denominations would be used to in their General Assembly. And then not everybody ends up being able to show up Mm-hmm. And so yeah. we, we may have some attrition from the presbytery allocations. Yeah. Uh, so, but that number, if you said, an, let's say we had a number on average around 160 or 165, um, we are, you can hear that that number is very, very different than other assemblies. We're, we're talking about a significantly smaller group of people. Oh, yeah. It's, like you said, a completely different feel. It's a business meeting. In the PCA, um, we have an assembly within the assembly, our overtures committee, which functions like a delegated assembly, though on a really compressed schedule to do the work that they're tasked to do. Because our assembly is, this year, more more biggest number ever was like twenty, almost 2,200 commissioners not delegates but commissioners and so how many days did you meet oh we met for maybe four days you know so you, it, you see the, the sense of the it's the way the work is yeah, done it's completely completely different now we also certain aspects of our assembly do work leading up to uh assembly week but it's still um a completely different feel from what you have and i've i've attended part of an opc assembly one time when it was close to my home in philadelphia and i was able to go for a day and even then uh, when I was pretty inexperienced, I, I recognized a qualitative difference in the field. At the last GA in 2019, getting down to the business here, Mr. David Haney ably served the 86th Assembly as moderator, and customarily the outgoing moderator then convenes the assembly uh, that, and speaks in the opening worship service. However, Mr. Haney went to be with the Lord in August 2019, not long after he moderated that assembly. So who stepped up in Mr. Haney's place to convene this year's meeting? Uh, just a couple of things, uh, just when you mentioned, David. Yeah. Uh, his service at the 86th General Assembly uh, was extraordinary. He, he did a very good job as moderator, and, and that was perhaps, uh, how would I put it, emblematic of his general service to the denomination in so many ways. It was... Uh, for us as a, as a denomination, well, the Lord, blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And we know that David, by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, is enjoying glory. Uh, but we, we miss him greatly. We're thankful for his service in our denominational office on her committees and as moderator of the General Assembly. Uh, so for us, that was, for a denomination, uh, our denomination, that was a significant loss. Um, and we continue to pray for uh, David's family. And uh, we continue to miss him greatly. I considered him, he, in, in all my uh, contact with him, I considered him a friend and a great encourager of gospel ministry. And that is, that is missed across the whole church. Uh, John Van Meerbeck, the uh, uh, moderator of our uh, 85th assembly, um, stepped in uh, to uh, ably uh, fill Mr. Haney's 
um, responsibilities to convene this uh, General Assembly. And did he preach at the opening worship service then? No, he didn't. Actually, it was Mr. Haney's pastor, Claude Taylor, who preached the opening uh, worship service and, and, and very fittingly, again, uh, reminded us of uh, God's gift in giving us uh, David in his service and also pointed us to Christ, the King of the Church. Uh, who was elected moderator for this year then? Yeah, uh, a man that I consider a friend and and uh, colleague in gospel ministry who I've always enjoyed good fellowship, uh, Pastor Zach Keel of Escondido Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and and did very ably in an assembly where where he, he had to work very hard. Yeah, and let's talk about that a bit. This year, the assembly was granted an additional day beyond the norm for its work. Why is that? So, uh, not surprising, but our assembly in uh, 2020 was canceled due to uh, the realities of COVID sweeping the globe and the questions on how best to be responsible about that. So our postponed assembly meant we had more work to do this year. No kidding. And uh, anything else to make the schedule unique this year or the docket unique? Our, uh, our, Our OPC culture includes um, something that's also perhaps different in when we have judicial uh, matters, uh, appeals and complaints in particular, uh, those are heard in perhaps more significant detail, not perhaps, undoubtedly in more significant detail by the whole assembly than perhaps in uh, some of our other fellow NAPARC denominations? Well, at least in the PCA, we have a commission that is uh, elected by the assembly to act as a commission with the power of the assembly to uh, basically rule or judge um, uh, judicial issues that rise to that level. Part of that is, is, is uh, I think that's a measure meant to uh, help the assembly in its work because we're so large and so we get a lot of these things. Uh, I also think that, you know, it's a, a bit of an accession to that reality rather than, you know, seeking to handle it in a more... I would say rightly Presbyterian manner. I think I'm safe to say that. Uh, a bit critical of of my of my communion in that regard. Um, but also, you all being a delegated assembly, I think are better able to to ensure that the men who are involved are uh, are going to be informed and and up to speed on on these matters as they come up. I, I don't think we could rightly expect that of our assembly with two thousand commissioners. But you know, I'm open to correction on that point as well. I mean, in a sense, it's almost like, if, as I understand your senior judicial commission, it's a sort of delegated, it smaller is. assembly. In a way. And, uh, and I think inevitably we're all wrestling with the same thing. We're wanting to, to do well in the matters, these weighty matters of appeals. Yeah, be appropriately discreet and uh, without being secretive. So we want to be transparent and yet discreet. That's a difficult thing to do, and uh, especially once you get beyond, you know, <laughs> Two people. Yeah, yeah, it, it is difficult, and and I can appreciate why you all have that standing judicial commission. Our our tradition, and and this really all goes all the way back to perhaps our denomination. Well, not perhaps our denominational sensitivity on how we began, and the whole questions of discipline uh, surrounding the Machen trial. And we have sought to to do these things deliberately, publicly, and carefully. And that meant that this year we had two years worth of General Assembly appeals and complaints. And not only, the, not only that, uh, we had 13 in total before us. Yeah, which is heavy even for two years. If we would divide that by two, 
or six or seven per year, that would even be significant. So uh, this made our uh, work uh, weightier than usual. Now we'll we'll touch on these things uh, toward uh, toward the second half of the interview, but you know, we're not going to get down into um, what I would think would be inappropriate or indelicate detail on a podcast. So before we get there, though, I want to cover some happier things. I, I know of several congregations in my denomination here in the PCA, including my uh, congregation and the congregation in which I interned, which have purchased the Trinity Psalter hymnal put together by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the United Reformed Churches in North America as a joint venture. Now that it has been out for a couple of years, how many OPC congregations are using that hymnal? So it was reported at the assembly about 50%, and uh, we also were heartened to hear that uh, the Psalter hymnal is being used beyond our denominational bounds. Um, it is, it's a joy. We, we actually adopted it in our local congregation later than most just uh, this year. And um, we have very much enjoyed using it. It's, it's a real joy to have a full Psalter and a hymnal in one volume. Uh, the Creeds and Confessions section is also helpful. And uh, we, we're seeing it used, of course, broadly also in the URCNA. And uh, we're thankful for that. Uh, we uh, we're very thankful for our joint participation with them. I mean, being co-laborers is a real honor to work with the URC. And then we're seeing other churches and other denominations pick it up too. And for me, there's a, I grew up in a in a church that uh, used the 1912 Psalter, and there's there's a good number of uh, uh, selections from the 1912 Psalter in that, and that comes from the the CRC and the, the URCNA tradition. Um, that that was also a heavy influence in in those churches, but what this what this Trinity Psalter hymnal uh, one of the joys for me is uh, if as I travel and uh, there's a greater commonality in the the language and song of our worship now across multiple denominations, and I think that's a that's a good expression of our sweet fellowship in Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, we, it is a great blessing to us. We're thankful for the OPC and the URCNA's work, fine work, in producing this resource to the church for our worship and um, uh, unavoidably for our doctrine as well. Now, was there any report on how many copies of the Psalter Hymnal were printed and distributed in 2020? Yes, uh, four, printer, four printings, I think, about 63,000 uh, copies and amazing yeah really really something and that and that just uh, keeps going up so and they're on back order now because I, I need a few more copies for our church and i can't get it and and we're actually my graduating class here at the seminary we committed to purchasing as soon as they're available purchasing a, a set for use in chapel here right now we're using the the 1990 trinity hymnal which is a fine hymnal but uh um, my graduating class in consultation with the faculty and dr master in particular uh landed on you know, giving a few hundred dollars to to get a set uh, for the seminary. So hopefully we'll be able to do that soon. I have I have a request into Great Commission Publications to let me know as soon as they're off of back order. Now there was an overture put up in 2019 requesting that the denomination change its form of government with regard to the installation of elders or deacons that had been ordained in another denomination. What can you tell us about this overture and the proposed change that is now before the presbyteries for consideration? Just briefly. So it came from the presbytery of the uh, Midwest, and <clears throat> there's two things. We uh, our, our book of orders 
is both seeking to maintain a recognition of prior ordination, for example, in another Presbyterian denomination of an elder or a deacon, um, just like we do with ministers. But there's a second question. Uh, we were, as I understand it, a little irregular in um, the the uniformity of our vows taken, depending on your circumstance. We could have a uh, licentiate being ordained. We could have a minister transferring in. We could have a ruling elder, a deacon being newly ordained, or we could have one transferring in. And there were little differences in the questions. So you could have officers in one denomination who had ultimately answered different questions concerning especially their disposition towards our standards and the book of church order. So this was an overture to recognize uh, both prior ordination to, to safeguard that language, but also regularize our ordination and installation vows. So all uh, subscribe to the same standards. That's great. I'm looking forward to seeing how that how that affects the uh, the Book of Church Order for the OPC in the future because it'll affect many of my friends and uh, and certainly many of my friends who do transfer back and forth throughout their lives either because of job changes or changes of call for ministers in particular. Uh, Peter, our graduates, yourself included, in the OPC are zealous for missions, both domestic and foreign. And so I always like to ask this, what were some of the notable home missions items of interest during the report from that committee, home missions being church planting here in in the States? Yes. So I can think of, uh, since this is a Dreamville Seminary podcast, I can think of two graduates that uh, of the seminary that particularly had... Um, Gave some encouraging words. Uh, Ethan Boyard, who is laboring in Wilmington, North Carolina. He was one of your interns. Yes, he interned at Covenant and a dear friend and brother in the Lord. Um, Excellent preacher, by the way. Yes, (laughs) yes. The Lord is uh, gifted in many ways, and uh, it's a real joy to see what the Lord's doing in Wilmington. A real joy. If you're ever traveling and you're in Wilmington, North Carolina, I can commend to you the ministry of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church there. Not only Ethan, but the uh, session there. There's a good number of close friends on the session. Uh, Ethan was able to speak about how um, the OPC uh, Loan Fund uh, helped their congregation uh, get into uh, a better location, a better building, and the Lord really has supplied wonderfully for that fledgling congregation. Beautiful uh, facility with... um it's a smaller building, but it has plenty of room and property to expand. So that's exciting. And it's, a, it's on a good thoroughfare there outside of Wilmington, right in Wilmington. Yeah, and the OPC has a loan fund. Uh, uh, it's part of the broader ministry of the General Assembly to help uh, churches get into uh, buildings and properties. It's uh, the movement of church planning, you often renting a place. And to have your own location does often vary much help ministry and this loan Amen. fund yeah this loan fund is has been a great blessing to many many congregations in the OPC especially many church plants uh, moving uh, to maturity uh, the second one is uh, Phil Proctor who spoke about mother-daughter church planting and uh, I have to say a couple things about Phil's uh, Phil's report the first thing is sometimes general assembly in this, maybe only happens at the OPC, but you've heard a lot of reports and and you've had a long day. Uh, it never fails that if, if Phil's going to give a report, 
he, he will break up the monotony. <laughs> He's and, a great speaker. Yeah, he, he did such a good job uh, encouraging churches to think about local churches to have in their DNA and in their mindset from the beginning. Uh, would w- w- Pray that the Lord might be pleased to use us to plant a daughter church. And there's a, a special mother-daughter church planning fund in the OPC to help with that. And that's great. And I think there was some discussion as well, if memory serves me correctly, of regional home missionaries, and uh, which were introduced to the OPC a couple of years ago, and it seems like it's it's doing well. Am I understanding that rightly? So regional home missionaries have been part of the OPC's church planning culture for a very long time. Okay. As a matter of fact, I can't think, as I think about reading OPC history, this has been almost a fixture in our history for a presbytery to have a a minister at large whose particular call it is to encourage, foster, and help develop church plants within the bounds of the Presbytery. Uh, we, Presbytery of the Southeast, we, we are um, we're blessed to have the longtime services of Reverend Lacey Andrews. And, and, and Lacey, uh, for example, the beginning of my own ministry as a church planner here in, in Greenville, an encourager, a helper, uh, a man to pray with, to talk to, and also a circuit preacher through our presbytery who goes from church plant to church plant. We also have provisional sessions when we have a church plant, and Lacey is usually on every provisional session. And uh, the Lord has used these men across our denomination to further the the work of church planting in remarkable ways. And uh encourage other denominations to think about it it's uh, it's it's a home a real home missionary were there any notable foreign missions items of interest that you wanted to highlight uh it was it was as you can imagine a difficult year for foreign missions our general secretaries uh mark bube and associate general secretary general secretary mark bube associate general secretary uh, doug clausen they usually spend and a great amount of their time and and their their wives and families give so much of them these men are are on the road or really in the air uh, year after year visiting field after field and, and lifting up the hands of our missionaries in prayer and in practical help uh when COVID hit they were they were they were grounded yeah quite literally and it made uh, it was a lot of difficulty for a lot of our missionaries in countries where uh, public assembly and and public preaching was uh, severely curtailed um then we also had some fields where some of our uh, long-term missionary endeavors were frustrated by increased governmental pressure and uh so for opc foreign missions in the last year i would consider it to be um a year where the Lord wonderfully and remarkably preserved our fields. But also we felt a good bit of pressure in different ways that we haven't for a long time. There are some acute difficulties that I heard about just here at the seminary uh, with the field in Uganda and uh, and a number of fronts, but then also in Haiti with all the turmoil, presidential assassination this past year, general craziness endemic to Haiti. Um, and that's an important field as well for the OPC. And I mean, that's not to men, that's not to leave out other fields that beyond Uganda and Haiti. I mean, those aren't your only two. You have plenty, but um, you know, these are just some examples that come quickly to mind for me. Yeah, those are definitely. We just had Ben and Heather Hop uh, present at our local congregation. Uh, ben was also able to come to the General Assembly, 
And in many ways, if I were to sum it up without getting into the details, uh, there was definitely a sense of the, the spiritual warfare of, of the ages, the fighting the good fight. But the Lord has preserved, and uh, I think right now, and this is post-General Assembly, but our missionaries are having more and more freedom again to take up their labor. Praise the Lord. Well, it's hard to talk about OPC Foreign Missions without talking about Dr. Curdo here at the seminary. He's deeply involved in not only in foreign missions, but also with the Committee on Ecumenicity and Interchurch Relations, or CEIR. This committee presents fraternal delegates. This year, I think you had delegates from the PCA, the ARP, the RPCNA, the RCUS, and the BPC. But it also directs the denomination's involvement in the International Conference of Reformed Churches, ICRC. Was there anything worthy of note in the report of this committee delivered, actually, by our own Dr. Curdo? That uh, committee had been so uh, ably helped and served by the labors of Reverend Jack Sawyer, who, um, again, a a dear friend of mine and someone who I was uh, on the phone with, usually once, sometimes twice a year with various matters. And uh, uh, a, a very well-known, both in our denomination, but especially in interchurch relations, a, a tireless traveler and ambassador of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church around the world uh, with deep connections in, in, in countries and to denominations. Again, I could, I could list uh, one, some in particular, his, his connections to New Zealand were... The Reformed Churches of New Zealand were profound, but really anywhere you went to a Reformed, an Evangelical Reformed and confessional denomination, the OPC had been there, they would know Jack Sawyer. Yeah, he was uh, suddenly uh, passed away, and uh, Dr. Curdo was able to speak to the assembly about his very faithful labors to our Lord in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and we were able to receive that report with gratitude to God and prayers for his family. Um, he, he, his passing together with uh, David Haney's passing were, uh, again, uh, for our assembly, two faithful servants of the church uh, taken in, in, in one year was a weighty matter for us. Really, actually, it, within one week, it seems like uh, Mr. Haney passed into glory shortly after Pastor Sawyer did back in August of 19. So that that was again a, a matter for reflection for us. And thanks to the Lord for their labors in the Lord and reflection on the brevity of life. And um, I think CIR also was dealing with an issue in the ICRC regarding the Reformed churches in the Netherlands, a denomination which is mem- member denomination of ICRC. Uh, which recently begun, or within the last couple of years anyway, to ordain women into office uh, against the counter-counsel of other churches in ICRC. How did the OPC Assembly deal with that this year? Yes, uh, that would in particular be the Reformed Churches of the Netherlands liberated. Yeah, that's right, because there's a couple varieties. A number of (laughs) varieties. The the Scottish tradition of Presbyterianism and the Dutch Reformed traditions perhaps rival each other in their ability to form various streams. We have nothing on the Baptists. <laughs> various streams, but in the Netherlands it is the same. Uh, the corresponding denomination here would be the Canadian and American Reformed churches. Uh, the, the name, perhaps, uh, that you, you all might know listening is uh, Klaus Skilder is the uh, central figure in the formation of that denomination and that 
the history of that church uh, dating back to the 1940s, a division from the um, uh, Christian Reformed Church of, uh, well, actually the technical name is the GKN, the former GKN in the Netherlands divided in the 40s. Uh, because of some controversy around the ministry of Klaus Skilder, a man whose writings are very useful and helpful, but not to get into all of that. That denomination since has uh, taken up the matter of the ordination of women, has commended it to the churches, has made a decision to con- to begin ordaining women into office, and the churches of the ICRC have, have definitely counseled against that, and the OPC in particular. We have a longstanding standing. Uh, relationship with this denomination and uh, it was a sober thing for the assembly to direct our representatives of our uh, committee to go to the ICRC and put forward a motion to terminate the membership of the Reformed Churches of the Netherlands liberated uh, from the ICRC. That is a weighty matter and I remember a personal note here uh, while Dr. Curdo was was dealing rather heavily with this issue and even going to the Netherlands to plead with the brothers there not to engage in this course of action, to give the counter-counsel, as it were, on behalf of CEIR, of the OPC, um, I was in class with him. And so I think we missed a day of class that semester so he could go to the Netherlands. And he asked us to pray, and uh, he brought back a sad report of how the, the council was really largely uh, brushed aside and rejected. And so, um, but, you know, we just, we place our trust in the Lord in these difficult matters of polity and, uh, and, and poor, what we would regard as poor and unbiblical thinking and decision-making in, ex- in expressions of, of Christ's church around the world. Now, moving on from that, the OPC Committee of the Historian had a momentous occasion this year. This committee is tasked with preserving the historical record of the denomination, and uh, especially for a a small, tight-knit group, you all are very good about publishing fine uh, reports and historical records of, uh, of what is going on in the life of your church. And this year, something significant in the history of the historian took place. Uh, there was a changing of the guard, am I right? Yes, uh, John Meather of Oviedo, Florida, uh, has ably served for 20 years, two decades. And uh, when I heard that number at the assembly, I mean, I knew that was uh, uh, true. When I began my ministry in the OPC, let me think, he'd been historian for five or six years, and suddenly it's 20. Um, John has tirelessly poured himself into this work, and... Uh, that preservation of the history of the church is something really taken seriously by our historian, the Committee for the Historian. And his books that he's co-authored with D.G. Hart, um, they're, they're very well written, full of great information. They, they don't, I mean, they do not, uh, you know, fall into hagiography by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, they're just good history, accessible to the average reader. And um, I commend them to our listeners. We read them here at the seminary part of our Presbyterian Church history class. Yeah, I mean, the uh, fighting the good fight yep. um, is uh, one of those great volumes. The That kind of work is very important for a denomination, and to do it well, it, to do it without getting into hagiography, but at the same time commending and preserving the very best. And I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's a kind of work that uh, just it's the 
continuation of the narrative of Christ's works in history through his church. And uh, it's an important work, and that history needs to be preserved. So after um, John comes uh, Camden Busey. Dr. Busey is uh, known to many through the Reform Forum and uh, also a, a dear friend and brother in the Lord. And uh, known here, also uh, around here, um, delivered a lecture, I think, last year. Yeah, the inaugural, it might be two years now, because I don't think we did it in 2020. It was in 2019. The inaugural Jerry Crick Lecture on Apologetics. It was excellent. He was uh, treating particularly uh, of Van Til's um, use of uh, common notions and, and you know, the relation between that and natural theology, so to speak, and uh, general revelation, these kinds of themes. It was a really good lecture, very helpful to our students, helpful to me. And, uh, and Dr. Busey's a friend. He's a fixture at our conferences now. He comes and sets up a Reform Forum booth and a frequent contributor to our journal, the Confessional Presbyterian, which is ours now. And uh, he's also on the board of Mid-America Reform Seminary, a, a sister school with whom we have much affinity and uh, in, in high regard. So I was excited to see a familiar name um, stepping into the work. And, and John uh, Meether is, uh, was immediately elected to the committee. And so now, he, though he's no longer the, the historian, he's emeritus, I suppose, he's serving on the committee, uh, I'm sure, helping Dr. Busey get settled in. What it comes down to, he's got big shoes to fill. But, he really does. Uh, but a but big I, opportunity. A big opportunity, and I, I just I think the Lord's equipped him to do it, and I'm thankful to thankful to have him doing that work. Well, we have a couple more issues here to bring up, and this is where we're getting kind of into the nitty gritty. There were two special committees that reported on Friday evening of July 9th to the assembly. Both the committees were heard and tasked with continuing their respective work for another year. Now, whereas the first committee is involved with a sensitive matter of serious contention in the Presbytery of the Dakotas, something I really don't want to get into, um, the second committee is involved in a task it was given way back in the 85th GA in 2018. And my understanding of the mandate here for the second committee is to propose specific linguistic changes to the doctrinal standards of the OPC. I've discussed this at length in the past on this podcast with Jim Stevenson, and uh, I think Brad Peppo and I talked about it a couple years ago. But what can you tell us about this project in particular by way of updates? That committee report was uh, fairly fairly brief. Uh, the, the committee had done some, some representative work and presented uh, suggested changes. Uh, the report was more of a communication, a communication update on the work, how it was going, what kind of work the committee was doing, and an invitation for uh, ministers to review, uh, ministers and elders to review and think about, and even the committee's open to correspondence. There was no specific action taken, and the work of the committee continues on. It is, It definitely is uh, It's a project I have mixed feelings about as a as a as a presbyter and then a, a delegate to the a commissioner to the assembly uh and and i i know and many others are watching it closely inevitably language changes over time and uh, we need to recognize that and there's something good about this some of the implications of making those changes are very significant and and the question how to do that well um particularly with a document that not only represents our confession, but 
a broader confession of Presbyterianism. Um, it's not a small question. The doctrinal or, or, or doctrinal fidelity um, <clears throat> is is a big question. Uh, how to make changes, and then the implications of changing a document that's that is really an ecumenical document uh, are all still in my mind. Uh, the men on the committee, I think, understand those things and are working hard with all those things in mind. I'm thankful for the care of the OPC in, in how we do things, but I, I'm, I'm sure that that, that remains uh, a weighty project and something that the assembly will carefully review in the coming years. I think uh, those of us in other denominations, particularly that have a form of the Westminster standards, uh, one form or another, we are all keenly interested to see what the OPC does with this because it, it will certainly, um, if any changes are adopted, it will certainly affect, you know, how we frame vows when ministers transfer and, and the like, as we've already discussed. Now, there's um, really the the big bombshell thing from the OPC assembly this year was a uh, de novo motion. That means it's, it's a motion that came uh, kind of not out of the blue, but just didn't have a clear place to fit into the docket as adopted at the beginning of the assembly. Uh, it was a motion to invite a parachurch organization called Grace to um, to come in as as a contractor, if you will, of the denomination to investigate or examine, inspect the denomination's practices regarding. Um, the sensitive matter of abuse allegations, instances of, of abuse, pastoral and otherwise, and and how the denomination can best serve the sheep in these very delicate and difficult situations. You know, I know this is a is a difficult thing to even talk about because it, it was met with some contention on the floor, but can you walk us through what exactly happened and, and what the fallout of this is or what the ramifications of what happened uh, may be for the OPC? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, this is a is a topic you can't help but uh, read about everywhere. Southern Baptist Convention, and then the last twenty years of kind of the public history of the Roman Catholic Church. We have a study committee right now in the PCA that was just renewed for a second year, studying this very issue, particularly on domestic abuse. Yeah, there's. I think we would be we would be very wrong as the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, not to think carefully about these categories and ask ourselves hard questions. Have we been doing well before the Lord to care for those who find themselves in terribly difficult situations in their homes, the place where, where the love of Christ is supposed to reign in marriage and family and relationship between husband and wife and parents and children. And, and when that's broken, and the aftermath of such of serious sins behind the closed doors of a home. Uh, this would be a good moment to learn. Uh, I myself am reading a number of books on the topic. Uh, I'm reading When Home Hurts from Christian Focus. I'm, I'm actually just last night ordered Mez McConnell's book, The Creaking on the Stairs, and I haven't read it yet. But I'm devoting a good bit of my time this year to reading on the topic. And by ministry, I've seen sadness. Um, and it, it's, it's an issue that's near and dear to my heart. Our presbytery has had to deal with some hard cases. And I think we've dealt with them 
firmly, but could we learn from how we dealt with them? Could we do better? I think so. Could the whole church have that conversation? I think so. And I think the motion that was made on the floor, and I know um, a number of the people who were concerned and, and, and supported that motion, I think I share a lot of those concerns. Uh, let me get to the second part of my answer to your question. Um, the wrong, it's the wrong organization. Um, I, I, I'm even concerned that in a Presbyterian denomination, it's just the wrong thing to do. Uh, we had, we had a, some debate on whether or not to, to hire this organization, whether or not the de novo motion was in order. And that had to do with the, the technicalities of how to put a docket together. Um, and there was a substitute motion to have a committee, uh, on the investigation or to, I, I can't remember what it was, but on the more general topic of abuse, the general assembly voted those things down. I don't, I hope not for any reason. And I have no reason to think for any reason that it's not concerned about these categories. The question is, how do we do it best as a church? Um, I'll, I'll say a little bit more. And, uh, I had a concern. I didn't say too much on the floor of the assembly. I was ready to, if, if we moved ahead with the grace organization, um, there, there's people with, uh, in that organization who have done very good things to expose real problems of abuse in Christian organizations that are heinous and shameful for the church, uh, cover-ups and, and sins and just very bad ways of dealing with things. At the end of the day, however, it's an organization, um, that has deep ties to liberal mainline Christianity. And I'm concerned about their views of human sexuality. Uh, Boz Chavidjan, I'm not telling you anything that he doesn't post on Twitter, is an open supporter of um, the LGBT movement. And I'm deeply concerned that in a denomination that's spent the last 80 some odd years uh, carrying on the tradition of Machen to push against liberalism, um, I'm not terribly interested in uh, those who don't share my convictions on human sexuality, investigating a denomination on questions that pertain to human sexuality. I think, uh, the impulse helpful, the organization chosen in the first motion, deeply unhelpful. And I hope we never do such a thing. Should we have these bigger conversations about the topic? Yes. I, I'd be strongly supportive of that. And I'll say one more thing. It's, the things that um, even evangelical churches have not dealt with well are one reason to deal with this topic and a pressing reason. There's a second reason. In my ministry, every week more and more, people who walk in through the doors have, have been abused, have never seen an intact marriage or home, have been physically abused, have been sexually abused in, in, in relationships or by family members. And as our as the concept of home and family unravel, uh, our ministries are going to have more and more uh, need to be equipped to deal with these categories faithfully, biblically, and as a reflection of the good shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ. These are massive issues in our culture, and they're startling. I, I grew up in an urban working class environment densely populated, tons of broken households around me, in a broken household myself. And yet I'm still surprised by things I hear, uh, both as a pastor and as a seminary student in the past and as a friend of pastors and elders. Um, not that we go around gossiping or anything, but 
you know, we, we seek each other's counsel uh, without names being named. And I frequently leave conversations with my heart broken over um, what Christ's dear sheep are suffering at the hands of those who claim to be Christians and those, you know, who sneak into the church otherwise um, and into the home otherwise. Yeah, and I'd say one more thing, uh, particularly a burden on my heart is, God forbid we tolerate such sins amongst those who are ordained to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, uh, uh, this is, uh, uh, I think, a great betrayal, uh, and it's happened far too often. And uh, I don't think our denomination is. We we definitely ought not to be allergic to asking ourselves hard questions, and if we are, there's a problem. And and not just asking questions, but how can we better serve Christ's church and lift up His name? The in a in a increasingly broken world, uh, the church ought to be a refuge for Christ's sheep. Absolutely, and at the same time, the church can't can't engage in the problematic discourse of the world, compromising to sexual deviancy, and certainly the church cannot be a cancel culture mill either. And so there's, is there a fine line or is there a big line? I, I don't know, but it's, it's something, uh, navigating this issue takes a great deal of wisdom. But you know, the hope is, and I come back to this all the time in my life, in my ministry, uh, James chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. If any would desire wisdom, ask of it from the Lord, and you will receive it. What a glorious promise. And you will receive it liberally and yeah. without reproach. He, he, will, he will pour it down in abundance. Does that mean we're going to be perfect? We're going to handle every situation perfectly if we pray? No, not necessarily. But God has made a promise to us. And when we go to him, we take heaven by storm, and you plead with him, and you... You argue even and say, Lord, you've promised me wisdom for these issues. To be a pastor, an elder, a faithful church member, please grant me this wisdom because I don't know what to do. Um, yeah, this is definitely a big issue. I think it's uh, timely. It's right for the church to consider. I, I want to be careful we do it the right way. Yeah, of course. Um, I, again, I can go back to my local ministry, um, the heartaches that I've seen in 13 years inside homes where the name of Christ was professed are, are remain, a, remain a heartbreaking reality. I just mentioned the book When Home Hurts. It was given to me by a woman in our church who suggested I read it and um, very, very so far very helpful and practical book um yeah i I, if if this issue comes around again in our denomination our general assembly in another way uh i think we could do well to to help the church serve the sheep better another sensitive issue because why not uh how if at all is the opc dealing with covid at the national level were there any motions brought to the floor this year or overtures brought to the floor for the denomination as such to take uh, any particular actions in response to COVID? Yeah, so there was a, there was an overture for the Presbyterian of the Southeast, and uh, that overture engendered a little, probably a little spirited debate. Um, it was an overture, if I were to summarize it, encouraging uh, the church to continue on, particularly in, in her public worship. 
and with uh, the the central action was to call for a day of prayer and fasting denomination wide day of prayer and fasting uh i was kind of it, w- it was on the floor of the assembly i was uh when it came out of the advisory committee the advice was that we 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 essentially not take up the overture and i was making a speech asking that we would and I believe that uh, what happened in 2020 and what we're still going through is unprecedented. Now, it's not unprecedented in terms of the degree of sickness. There's been the bubonic plague in Europe, and there's been other periods where there's been far greater sicknesses. But I can't help but think of what happened in April of last year. Almost globally, the public worship of God was almost entirely halted for weeks. At the same time. At the same time, the whole world. I wrote an article on Reformation 21 titled COVID-19 Repentance. I've been reflecting on this is an act of our Lord Jesus from the throne. Um, The Lord's Supper not being served, the public gathering of the saints and the preaching of the word. And you can't help but think about this in the sweep of history. And I think it was right uh, to call for a day of prayer and fasting and be reminded that when Christ acts in history and in, in a way that humbles us, um, this is a serious sickness. It's a sickness that has affected uh, many people that I know. We've had or some of our families in our congregation have lost family members, not in our church, but outside of our congregation. It's sobering. You know, God's brought us up to, to face our mortality as, as, as the world. Um, the OPC canceled its assembly in 2019, uh, just out, out of an abundance of caution. And uh, the churches across the nation. Meaning 2020. Sorry, 2020. Yeah, 2020. Because of COVID. Because of COVID, yeah. yeah. And uh, the churches across the, uh, across our Presbyterians and churches across the nation did different things in different jurisdictions, probably like every other denomination. And I think there's some sensitivity about that still in the church who did what was right. And some of that probably came up on the floor of our General Assembly. I was happy to see that we maintained a day of prayer and fasting. Well, I think it's the right thing to do. But and the overture itself, as it was presented, was tabled indefinitely. So it wasn't voted down, but it wasn't voted up. It was Well, it was a little bit more complicated. It, it, the committee um, made a recommendation, yes, to, to not take it up. Yeah. But then later in the assembly came back around to um, call for a day of prayer and fasting. And I think that was good. Um, that was the, the thing I thought without getting into the weeds of how best in every jurisdiction to respond to COVID. That's a question that Presbyterians and local congregations had, had to wrestle with. And it's hard for me to, I have a, I have a brother who's a, uh, a minister in another country where the lockdown rules are quite profound. And there's a lot of question about where's the limit of government uh, power. And these questions are profound and they're, they're important, but they're also difficult jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And I think there's something about the assembly being careful about that. That was good, but I was very happy with a, a day of prayer and fasting. Now, it's my practice on these podcasts not to discuss in any significant detail matters pertaining to judicial cases, appeals and complaints, namely. But as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, there were 13 such matters 
that came before the the assembly this year, which is a massive number. Uh, are there any general comments you think would be helpful for our listeners to consider since these these things were such a present and time-consuming part of uh, this year's assembly? Yeah, they weren't just present and, ti- and, and time-consuming. Some of them were pretty public. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and that reality uh, is, is what it is. Um, there, there were uh, matters from the Presbytery of the Northwest, the Presbytery of the Dakotas, Presbytery of the Southeast. And, uh, you know, overall, the assembly did its work carefully, judiciously, and with a very good spirit. And uh, I was grateful to God for that. The I don't want to have really to get into all the details of all of them is more complicated. But you know, we, that, we, that we, if if we did do that kind of thing, it would warrant another episode. But you know, I I've said to other podcasters about this kind of stuff. You know, it's just not advisable. No. To, to do this. Um, no, well, you, you can't it's not really. the best medium, and it's it's well, a distraction from really the purpose of, of the debriefs. Yeah, you can't really do it. And the other thing is that you have to be careful. This, the assembly, together, prayerfully, led by word and spirit, uh, made some decisions, hard decisions on hard cases. And I'm thankful for the good work that was put in and the maintaining of the unity of the church. And... Uh, 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 the way the Orthodox Presbyterian Church does these things is very deliberate and careful. And uh, there's a lot of good men that put in a lot of hard work. So uh, I'm, 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 I'm very grateful to God for our denomination and uh, pray that God would continue to, to help us grow in that area. Well, let's end on a high note. Not that that wasn't a high note. That was actually uh, as high a note as I think you could uh you could hit on that kind of issue, but um, what was the single most encouraging takeaway from General Assembly for you? It could be something that we've mentioned already, or it can be something else entirely. You know, frequently what I hear from guys is uh, is the fellowship of, of the saints, is being with brothers, meeting uh, like-minded brothers from across the OPC uh, who maybe perhaps you haven't met before. Some of our graduates who were there on behalf of your presbytery told me, man, they were just so encouraged to meet brothers from out west whom they've never met before and uh and and make those connections um you know i've been encouraged in general by our discussion uh today about your assembly's work and you know the modest but stable growth of the opc in trying times and the continuing advance of the gospel at home and abroad anything else that that you might want to throw out there for our listeners consideration so it's hard to hard to pick one thing. I mean, who can't who doesn't enjoy fellowship at General Assembly? Uh, I, even the, if there's one thing that our assembly ha- has, particularly because it's smaller, uh, we have fellowship times built in in the evenings. Uh, the president of Dort College, who has his residence just on the edge of campus and a great backyard and a big fire pit, uh, we I mean every night we we debated during the day and sometimes not always on the same side of the question. And in the evening we were able to fellowship, talk, encourage one another in the Lord. And there is a good spirit in the denomination. I'm thankful to God for that. The OPC general assemblies for me have always been encouraging. This one for me in particular was, and personally was a little more hard work representing the Presbytery of the Southeast. Um, but even in that, uh, I, I never come away from an assembly without, by God's grace, 
more friends and more encouragements in the Lord to keep preaching Christ and Him crucified. There is a sense of uh, holy fellowship, and we're doing holy things, and we're doing it for the best of causes, Christ and His kingdom. And, uh, yeah, I, I counted an honor to go and uh, pray that if God calls me again, uh, I'd both be able to serve well and enjoy all those good blessings. Peter, as always, it is a pleasure to spend time with you, and this conversation has uh, been instructive for me and and just enjoyable as I plow through my denominational debrief series this year. I think I have one more that I absolutely must need uh, must needs to get done, and then uh, I'll be able to roll into some more of my regular programming. Thank you so much for coming into the studio today. Zach, uh, grateful to be able to do it and uh, to tell you a little bit about the church that Christ has called me to serve in and also grateful for the continuing ministry of Greenville Seminary. So um, may God receive the glory. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. donate For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.